welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. This is Phil. This week, our guest on Weird Studies is Lionel Snell, who is better known by his pen name, Ramsey Dukes. Mr. Snell's works of magical philosophy include Sasatbami, which stands for Sex, Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed, as well as Thundersqueak, The Good, the Bad, and the Funny, Uncle Ramsey's Little Book of Demons, and, most recently, My Years of Magical Thinking. I can't promise the same thing will happen to you, but for me... Discovering and reading these works completely changed the game, changed my whole way of thinking. His works identify and examine motions of thought and feeling that are immediately recognizable, but which we most often contrive to hide from full awareness. Perhaps we dismiss them as silly or irrational when we notice them in ourselves, or we give them a respectable or at least recognizable name, depth psychology, for instance, or marketing, anything but what they actually are which is magic. The piece we are discussing in this episode is The Charlatan and the Magus, which is an essay in a collection titled Blast Your Way to Megabucks with My Secret Sex Power Formula. Such a great title. You can use the show notes to find it online. In it, Lionel Snell slash Ramsey Dukes recalls to our memory all those spirit mediums and spoonbenders whose claims of authentic psychic powers have been debunked by skeptical researchers as well as those yogis and gurus and ascended masters who turn out to be exploitative frauds. As Snell points out, when confronted with such stories, we tend to respond in one of three ways. If we are skeptics, we believe that such cases prove the essential fraudulence of all pretensions to magic. If we are defensive believers, we think, ugh, not another jerk trying to debunk what I already know to be true. And if we are committed believers, we say, well... It's true that those people were frauds, but my own guru is a true ascended master. It is entirely typical of Snell's approach that he tries to find an alternative to these three stock responses, to give us a new way to think about trickery and fakery and magic that might win us a few extra degrees of cognitive freedom. What if trickery is, as they say, not a bug, but a feature? What if trickery is the straw that stirs the magical drink, if you need a little trickery to get the real magic to happen, what if the charlatan and the magus were, in fact, one and the same person? We hope you enjoy our program. want to thank you so much for coming on our show and uh, talking to us. I admit to being slightly apprehensive about this interview simply because I have read your stuff for so long and have gotten so much from it. It's, uh, I don't know, these are pieces of writing that have really heavily influenced my own worldview, 
really shaped my own idea of magic and what, what it's about. Yeah, it feels like such an enormous honor to be talking to you in person. I almost don't know what to say. So, well, let's say let's just present the essay first. Um, so the the essay is the charlatan and the uh, the the magus. It's uh, do we say magus or magus or I, I've never known how to pronounce that word. <laughs> how do you pronounce it? Magus, I think yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah, magus. So the charlatan and the magus, and it's uh, it was published in 1983, correct? And um, yeah, so so that's the essay we're going to be exploring today um, and discussing, uh, at least as our starting point for the, the a discussion that may go elsewhere. We'll we'll find out. But um, yeah, uh, Lionel, if you yeah, if you want to tell us a little bit about how how the essay was was written. Well, I've just read the introduction, which says actually it was spring '84. Um, uh, it was a meeting of a group called the Society, which was a sort of occult essay club founded by Gerald Suster, and it was notable for having a number of, it was about, I don't know, about 20 people or so it might be at a meeting, but many of them were people who had written academically about magic. There was, apart from Gerald Suster, there was Francis King, Bob Gilbert, Eric Howe, Tanya Lerman, Christopher McIntosh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, all of whom by then or since then had written books um, on specific aspects of magical history. So I was a bit overawed about how I was going to read an essay to these people who were so you know, academic and that, and um, whereas I was the crank who actually practiced magic. Um, and so that explains partly the, the sort of caution in the thing, you know, where I advance and then I, I go back and sort of as, as though I'm making sure they're catching up with me, you know, and I'm not making too, anything too presumptuous or assuming too much. And I realised that when I read it through. Now the other thing, small, small detail, is that I wrote this on, for me, what has been just about the best computer ever made, which was the Tandy Model 100, which was a little thing <laughs> the size of an A4 pad with a proper keyboard on it, you know, a proper clanking one, um, and a tiny little LCD screen, which meant that you could really sit in a park or on a moving bus or something, because it had quite large writing, and you could write and you could edit an article. It was fantastic. Now, the thing was that, um, of course, I was going to have to print it out, and the, the turned out there was a portable printer. It was a thing a bit like those um, card readers that they have in restaurants, you know, with a big roll of paper, which um, you put your card in and out comes a receipt. It was a small box which had a big roll of paper and it had four tiny little ballpoint pens in it. So it went jiggity, 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 jiggity and wrote with little ballpoint writing in colour and you got this long, long string of words. And so that explains the bit at, right at the end where I say, many yards of language stretch out before me because I was unrolling this, unrolling this thing as I was reading. Yeah. So that, oh, wow. that, that was it. That was the, it and was, there I was just thinking that was a colorful figure of language and it turns out to have been literally true. Yes. I just say that we, we met in a pub in Museum Street near the famous Atlantis bookshop um, and it was an upper room of the pub where we used to meet and read these essays. How was it received at the time? How did they receive um, the essay? I remember it went down well, yes. Yes, I, um, I don't remember very well, but um, I felt quite pleased when I came away, certainly. And then I published it um, 
and somewhere after that. And eventually it appeared in a book which has, for my money, the best single title of any book ever in history. Blast your way to megabucks with my secret sex power formula and other reflections upon the spiritual path. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that. <laughs> I know. I like leaving it in the bathroom when my wife's students come over to the house to take cello lessons. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how would you summarize the thesis of the essay? Because it's an essay that Phil and I have discussed on multiple occasions and uh, that I, I read again last night. And again, I was struck by its lucidity, but also its... I mean, necessary ambiguities, I think, because you're going into 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 strange territory with this piece of writing, and it, there's a necessary uh, mysteriousness to to the to the, some of the concepts that you float before us. So maybe try to summarize what the thesis is, if that if such a thing is possible at all. Well, it fits quite well with the whole sort of idea of weirdness, which you talked about in an earlier piece, because my basic thing is a recognition that there's a sense of scrupulousness that people uh, if there's any sign of anything being dubious in the occult world they say oh well that's fraud you know and we must dismiss it and I give the example of you know a scientific experiment to test telepathy and then it just they catch someone cheating and then the whole experiment is dismissed you know oh the person's a fraud and I suggested that scrupulousness could be an actual handicap. The one needs to be able to get past that gateway. And I gave a very simple example, you know, the tarot trumps, uh, which if you think of the trumps as a sort of path to spiritual enlightenment, as some people do, it doesn't begin with respectable people, the Pope or the high priest or the empress. It actually begins with a fool wandering along and then the juggler, who in the old packs really was just a street charlatan, you know, doing conjuring tricks. And right. so I, I actually begin with a story which Christopher McIntosh was writing this novel, you know, where it's one of these quests which runs through a person's life, a spiritual quest. And, you know, every now and again in the story, well, things go quiet and then there's some new thing that happens which leads him on with the quest. And at one point he's with a, he meets a group of artists at a cafe in Vienna. They turn out to be important for the next step in his quest, um, this group of young artists. And I say, you know, it would be rather good if at the table they turn out to be a bit of a fraud. You know, in other words, they will drink too much and they expect him to pay the bill. Because it seems somehow right that an important spiritual step yeah. should have something seedy about it, you know. A reason enough for him to say, I'm having nothing more to do with those people, but not so bad that um, you know he's justified in that and so I just had this feeling that if you look at all these famous gurus and people like that you know, Blavatsky people like that um, there's nearly always something about them um, some story which discredits them and people tend once they find that out they say oh I won't have anything more to do with that person you know that's a fraud he's a charlatan and I'm saying maybe that's actually a sign that you need to get through that gateway and so yeah it's very much about allowing something which we're taught not to allow later on in the piece you actually argue that even the most hyper rationalist forms of cognition involve the kind of trickery 
right? That there's no way out of it. It's kind of necessary. Um, in our conversations, Phil and I have touched on, for example, if you look at the philosophy of Plato, so Plato presents these unchangeable forms, these like eternal forms of intelligibility, which which govern reality. And these things are, set, are, are in Platonic philosophy are said to be permanent and eternal. But of course, it's Plato that's creating the idea of the eternal form. So the idea that the forms were there before he came up with them is part of the concept he's actually inventing. So there's like a, a little trickery in that even. You know what I mean? Like there's I, I really like those parts because they point to... Um, to the trickster as a much more universal figure than just uh, the, the street juggler who's relegated to the alleyways and the back alleys. He's also in the laboratories and the, obviously in the halls of, uh, of, of power and that sort of thing, right? Yes, yeah, see, I mean, I, I give the examples of, you know, um, a lot of the psychological experiments which are given very often to sort of disprove magical thinking or to show that it's uh, the, the illusory nature of it they nearly all begin with the researchers kidding people that they're looking for something which they're not. You know, like um, right. um, a, a multi-choice question test. And they say we're trying to test people's speed of answering under stress when actually they're looking for something else. But they need to tell this fib in order to get at the truth, which is paradoxical. <laughs> There's a line uh, towards the end of the essay that I really love. Uh, you say, the very idea of objectivity is a trick. The researcher imagines he is a sort of condom, or <laughs> rather, rather, I'm sorry, I misread that. Uh, the research... <laughs> <laughs> that changes the meaning, rather. The researcher imagines he is in a sort of condom that gives infinite sensitivity to whatever he is studying, yet perfect protection against contaminating the subject. I, and I thought that was a funny figure for the uh, sort of absurdity of this idea of objectivity, that somehow we can be in the universe measuring things and forming hypotheses about those things, and yet somehow our perspective is going to be a, an abstract view from nowhere. And I like that idea of trickery as the, the fly in the buttermilk, the worm in the apple. It's just, it's there. And it's not, as you say repeatedly throughout the essay, it's not as if what you're saying is, well, you know, then we need to redouble our vigilance and make sure that, you know, we get the fly out of the buttermilk, we get the worm out of the apple. No, it's it's there from the beginning. It's, to change my metaphor a little bit, it's a little bit like the bacillus that gets into the milk and makes cheese. Um, hey, that's a good you know, it's, it's Yeah. Yeah, it's just an integral a part of the thing. But as you say right at the beginning of the essay, we are in an aeon, an age, an era, in which good, instead of a, perhaps an older idea that uh, God is equivalent to good and the devil is equivalent to evil, rather we are more apt to think that good is truth and evil is equivalent to illusion. And the difficulty then it becomes in making peace with the idea that illusion and truth get into one another, just like the bacillus getting in the milk, that, uh, rea and reality is the cheese that they make in, uh, through their dynamic interaction. That's, that's a lovely, uh, that idea of the bacillus is interesting to me because, of course, I can think of so many cases. I mean, I, I gather you know, the first invention of beer basically was a liquid that went off and right. people before they threw it away tasted it and thought this is interesting and then of course the famous <laughs> story of the discovery of penicillin 
basically the cultures went mouldy and he was going to throw them away until he noticed the interesting fact that the germs weren't proliferating, you know. So that's a rather amazing sort of alchemical thing where the rotten transforms into something immensely valuable. And uh, so I, I love that uh, metaphor you've put forward, yeah. This is a timely reflection as well because we just finished editing the second show of our trash stratum discussion. So like there's a line in the science fiction novelist Philip K. Dick, there's a line in one of his novels where he says that uh, the symbols of the divine show up initially at the trash stratum. That's his line. And uh, th this was tr true in his own life. I mean, this is something that he found to be true. Uh, you can almost look at Philip K. Dick's own life as a pulp novelist who has been transmogrified into one of the great figures of American literature. Uh, you can kind of see Dick's own career, perhaps, as bearing this out. But also, we're having this conversation about, I don't know if I want to say truth appearing at the trash stratum, but this trash stratum, this idea of, as you say, an alchemical process by which rottenness, spoilage, and decay turns into something rare and precious and something that we're all in pursuit of. This seems to be a pretty direct line from the, this earlier conversation. Yeah. Mm. The thing is, when you start uh, sort of speaking up for illusion, people very quick to think you're trashing truth. Now, I, uh, I think I sort of struggled with this a bit in my last book, you know, the, my years of magical thinking, that if I just fall back on my sort of four cultures thing, people forget that there are other measures. There's goodness, beauty, and wholeness, perhaps. Uh, and truth is given such prominence that I always think of that example of, you know, I think this is the problem that um, psycho researchers get. They get some interesting re readings and results. And they simply want other people to look at them, you know, to judge them. But people won't look at them because they know what they're doing is, is nonsense and unscientific. The idea is that knowledge that it's untrue means that um, that's the only standard. I had a, this friend who I lent her a slightly, you know, she was um, suffering from some ache or pain, and I lent her a slightly cranky gadget I got off the, got off the internet and said, give it a try, <laughs> it works quite well for me. And she, the next day, she said, um, I said, how'd you get on with it? Oh, I didn't try it. I, I, I was suspicious of it. And I thought, that's amazing. You know, the um, fact that she thought it was untrue meant she didn't even try to get healing out of it, you know. <laughs> Whereas you think, yeah, hedge your bets. And so, if you take goodness, now that came up a few years ago when there was this thing about stem cell research. And I think people were who argued against it, said it's, it's not good, it's not godly. Now, that's a case where actually I back the truth people. You know, this is going to tell us a lot about um, things. We're going to bring new cures and all that sort of thing. But if you push that a bit further and you had, say, a Nazi doctor saying, I want a 100 Jews that I'm going to, I don't know, starve to death or feed them with medicines um, and see how long before they die. And this is going to re result in thousands of people being saved in the future because of our discoveries. And then you, I, I would say, but that's not good. And if he then said, but we're, it's a mercy killing, you know, that they're going to have years of horror in a concentration camp, these ones would be dead within a week. Um, now, all that is sort of true, but that's the point where I say goodness becomes more important than truth. In terms of beauty, you know, uh, my example was, I'm teaching at a school and they, they decide to put on 
is it Henry V, uh, you know, a Shakespeare play anyway, um, as a school play. And the history master says, uh, no, we can't do that. That's nonsense. Uh, there's no evidence that, uh, you know, the king said once more unto the breach, dear friends, and all that sort of thing, and spoke in couplets and so on and so forth. Um, instead, we're going to uh, get everyone together <laughs> for a two-hour reading from a history textbook about that battle. Now, I would say beauty overrules that truth in that case. So uh, people forget that there are other standards of judgment, like does it actually, do you get healing from it, you know, uh, or whatever, because there's this huge emphasis on truth as the only thing. And so if you question that or say other things are important too, they tend to say, oh, you're being post-truth and, um, you know, you're put downgrading truth, whereas I'm trying to upgrade other standards of judgment. When I attended the University of Toronto, I had the good fortune to attend an amazing class on Thomas Aquinas. And it was it was one of those last minute choices. You know, I had to pick a class to fill out the schedule and I just kind of, oh, I'll try this. And it was actually really illuminating. And one of the things that I got from it was that the, these three kind of um, transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness, is that they, they indicate different modalities, different ways of apprehending reality or of making judgments at the same time as they test one another. So for Aquinas, for something to be true, it also needs to be good and beautiful or else it can't even be true. Or if it's true, it's true in a, a false sense. It's a kind of like a banal or irrelevant truth, uh, a truth that can be used to lie, you know? So th there needs to be this balance between these... Um, these transcendentals, because for Aquinas, for the scholastics, these transcendentals are all all refer back to this oneness, right? To this God that illuminates all of being, and and one can take that or reject it. It doesn't really matter. But one of the things that I think is important is the question of how we preserve these three transcendentals, and we can add wholeness to that unity. How do we preserve them in a postmodern age where, quote-unquote, God is dead? How do they still matter, right? What, what argument do we have really against the Nazi scientists? Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I like that very much because it's, it's what I was uh, feeling but not expressing, is that the idea that they're, they're all, in a sense, linked. They're mutually supportive. Yeah. So if you only emphasize one, you're losing out. Ideally, you do want, as you say, beauty, truth, and goodness all to be in there in some measure. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's very good. I mean, it, it's relevant, of course, now, people, this idea of we've got a post-truth society and people are very worried about what politicians are saying and things like that. And the trouble is that if all they concentrate on is the truth, you get these rather fatuous arguments that, I know, Trump says something about Mexicans... Um, uh, taking all the jobs in, in America or something like that. And the response is to rush and find statistics to prove what Trump said wasn't true. And by the time you've done all that, you know, he's moved on to something else. That's right. Looking at it as a sort of magical statement, for me, the question they should say is not whether it's true or not, but why did he say that? What was his magical intention? And then you can sort of either align yourself with that attention if you think, well, he's trying to do something right, that I go along with it for the time being, or else you decide what he's doing is evil in some way or not good. There's that question of why, rather than trying to use truth as the only measure for judging it. 
And I think that, I mean, because I think of the example of, you know, advertisements, uh, the famous phrase, Guinness is good for you. Now, do you rush off and do uh, years and years and years of um, double-blind testing of Guinness to find out whether that's true or not? Or do you just say, why are they saying that? Beer has a reputation for being drunkenness and vomiting in the streets and so this, that, and the other. Guinness is good for you. Could change the image. You know, it's it sort of, you get to it like a, like a, a magical act. Then you can work with it. You can either decide, well, I like that. I like the taste of Guinness. I go along with it. Or um, this is disgraceful. They're trying to um, make people drink more of this stuff. You know, whatever. But it really comes from that analysis for me rather than getting very het up about whether it's exactly true or not as the first principle. things that I think is valuable about your four cultures approach and here I should just say in passing to the audience listening if you are interested in following this up you should read Sasatbame S-S-O-T-B-M-E which stands for Sex Secrets of the Black Magicians Exposed and that is Lionel's early book since revised that presents an elegant brief but very filled out theory of magic that revolves around an idea that there are four cultures a culture of science a culture of art a culture of magic and a culture of religion although i think i just listed them out of order um, but one of the ideas uh, implicit in this is the idea that there are regular cycles by which the kind of dominant complexion or flavor of a given culture at a given period of time changes and is oriented more perhaps towards a scientific culture. And then with the turning of the aeonic wheel, that will turn into more of an arts culture and so on. Um, let me think, what is the sequence? Is magic, art, uh, religion, science? Yes, that's it which is usually presented, you see, as a sort of a linear thing. Ages ago, people were ignorant, and so they danced to make it rain, they did magic. And then, um, then uh, they, this developed with practice into they became good at it, and it became art, you know, this um, drama, music, and so on and so forth. And then a religious culture, when people began to recognize authority, and at last reason took over, and... Um, observation and now we at last we've reached the pinnacle of scientific culture it's usually presented like that yeah where it is assumed that we are going to remain at the pinnacle of science forever and if we don't then it's science is imperiled and we have to fight against the forces of irrationalism and so on um but the I... Chelton festival when it was the same time as the person spoke about the end of history you know was it Fukuyama mm. or whatever it is now we have um the sort of democratic capitalist system, it's the end of history, you know, all the others were erroneous, whereas I was much more aware of the churn, you know, I just think of so many examples of when, you know, like in the 50s was a very, very materialist, scientific view of the world, and it was followed by the magical revival of the, of the 60s, you know, the hippie revival, and the same thing happened in Victorian times, so there were just many examples to me where actually 
magical thinking seemed to arise after a period of rationalism and uh, skepticism. Which, which I think actually describes our own time remarkably well. I feel like there's a sort of almost a palpable feeling of exhaustion in a kind of public rhetoric of scientism, which is uh, kind, and you can almost, I mean, to me at any rate, I, f I can almost feel the turn of collective sentiment, of feeling. It's as much feeling as it is thought, although it manifests as thought, uh, towards something that's much more magical. I saw just a few days ago the recent Derren Brown demonstration where they publicized it saying something like, Derren Brown tries out magical thinking. Now, he was very much rose up on the sort of Dawkins debunking type of conjuring. You know, he would um, demonstrate something which looked like prediction or tarot reading or whatever, and then expose it um, as being you know, a rational explanation behind it and, and human deception. And that sort of went out of fashion. You know, it was, it was quite a craze after the 2000 or so. And then there was a move to more people psychic entertainers it began really with people who might do the same show but instead of saying there i've shown you that it was just trickery they would leave the audience to decide what they thought in other words they leave it open-ended and they found that actually people love the mystery they would prefer to feel they'd experience magic than to be told that everything was just a fraud now, the interesting thing to me about this recent Darren Brown thing was that he played the role of a hellfire preacher doing healing. And he didn't, at the end, sort of say, there, it's all a fraud. He gave a final speech about, you know, the wonderfulness of human nature and um, our extraordinary brains, because he actually sort of healed people in front of the audience, you know, things like that. It was similar to the book which I was terrified to read at first because I thought, oh God, it's going to make my book re redundant, The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking, which is basically a sort of exposure of human folly in many ways. And yet he points out how wonderful it is and how innate it is in human nature. Uh, things like the way that we can gather around an imaginary entity like a god or a nation and become a tremendous unified fighting force or whatever. He wasn't just presenting that as human stupidity, but as an extraordinary human strength. And in all those, I see this sort of shift in attitude. People are no longer satisfied with just the simple debunking explanation. They're facing the fact that we have these tendencies, these abilities, and what is their usefulness? Why do we have them? Why has evolution given us these ways of thinking? And I find that richer, much richer, um, to look at things like that. I've just uh, been, some time ago, I just read uh, the book Sapiens. Now, that was interesting to me. Did you know the book Sapiens by, oh God, I can't remember his name, but... It's a bestseller right now, isn't it? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Now, um, he gives a very good account of the sort of development of human thinking and the instinctive urges that we have and things like language and how people can be united and it works very well for me because I see in it that progress through the cultures but towards the end of the book he presents it as a totally linear thing again he doesn't see any doesn't acknowledge any cycling 
And I know that academics don't like cycles, really. You know, they associate them with crankiness. Yeah, um, exactly. It's very true. But it means that as you read those later chapters, he's saying some things which seem to me very silly. He says of some writer or thinker, this was the first time that someone acknowledged that they didn't know the truth. Whereas in the past, the truth was something fixed and solid that people believed in. And I thought, hang on, what about, you know, um, was it Socrates who said, you know, the more I learn, the more ignorant I know I am, and things like that. And, and Pontius Pilate saying, what is truth? Right. Towards the end of that book, he was saying things that simply weren't true as far as I concerned. Because although I went along with his general argument, he wasn't acknowledging any churn or cycling of these um, these ways of thinking. I think the academic prejudice against cyclical as opposed to linear ideas of time is, to me, a very interesting phenomenon. I think most academics are trained in such a way that the linear pattern of time just is obviously more convincing, but I don't know why it should be so. There's no better argument a priori for the kind of metaphysical convincingness of linear versus cyclical time. But one of the fundamental, I would argue at any rate, one of the fundamental patterns of thought that has crystallized within the last few centuries and the era that we call the modern era. And, you know, talking about a particular part of the world, the North Atlantic West, but this, the cultural and intellectual transformations that have happened in that corner of the world have amounted to the creation of a new set of mental axioms or ideas that we carry around in our mind without necessarily ever being aware that these are ideas rather than, you know, just reality, unmediated. And one of them, I actually, I wrote a blog post when I wanted to announce the existence of Weird Studies. I wrote a blog post enumerating some of these largely unspoken and unexamined mental scripts. And the first one, the one I wrote first, was time moves irreversibly forward. Situations evolve from previous situations, and this evolution goes on continuously. And the meaning of each such situation is given by its place in progressive linear time. This idea is so deeply buried in the you know, epistem of the modern that it is not something anybody feels that they ever need to argue for. It just seems transparently obvious. Well, there's the obvious feeling advantage of it, which is what I know now negates everything that went before. Right. Because I, in this cutting edge of progress in the 21st century, um, you know, so, I mean, for science to see itself as the absolute peak of human ability is very flattering. And particularly if you're having an argument with a religious person and you can feel that their way of thinking is a, is a bit primitive, you know. Um, so, it's, yes, I'm more grown up is um, one of the <laughs> sort of... Uh... One of the great selling points, Yeah. But the thing that a cyclical or aeonic view of time gives you, one of its affordances, is that it allows us to talk about these different sovereign goods. You know, the idea that each one of these cultures, magic, art, religion, science, has a good for which it is, uh, or to which it is oriented. So the, the good that religion is oriented to is, well, goodness. Uh, science, it's truth. Uh, art, it's beauty. And in magic, it is perhaps something more like wholeness. And one great advantage of wholeness, of the magical style of thought, 
is it allows you to encompass all the other ones and try and hold them in some kind of balance as opposed to necessarily wanting them all to be suborned to one's own point of view. And the idea of like a rotation through different epistems or different ways of viewing the world means that rather than having to say, well, which is really more important? Is beauty really more important than goodness? Is goodness really, in some cosmic sense, more important than truth or whatever? Rather, what you are presented with is a spectacle by which these things dance with one another. They are forever turning around one another in a slow dance. And there is a kind of a wholeness. I mean, the actually thinking this way itself allows for a kind of wholeness or integration of these ideas. Yeah. Yes, because people are very quick to sort of want to know what's number one. You know, what is right. the real object of magic? What are you trying to achieve? Which wholeness is not a very good answer to that because, you know, if I've turned out to be really good at doing something, I start thinking about the things I'm not good at. You know, um, it's an on, it's a eternal, ongoing exploration. People like to see a very clear movement towards a favourite thing or a best thing. I, I was wrestled with this thing of, um, you know, I've tended to put power and strength as being contrasting things rather than people often equate them as the same thing. And I brought this up in my years of magical thinking. And the example I give is the young pharaoh who's, you know, just a sort of five-year-old kid and he plays with the slave that's supposed to be looking after him. And they're, they're more or less equal. They're just kids playing together. Then one day he's tired and he asks the slave to carry him back. And the slave knows if he doesn't obey the pharaoh's son, he and his family will be killed. So he has to carry him back. And then that sets up a power relationship. From then on, he knows he has to obey the young prince. And, of course, what happens is the prince gets more and more hooked on his power and more and more often asks the guy to carry him. And the slave is getting stronger because he's carrying him. And the prince is getting weaker but more powerful. And it's a trading of the two. Now, the thing is, I, I saw this in couples, you know, where you have a, a couple where one person is very dogmatic and insists on certain things. And the other has to give in um, in order to have peace. And what happens is the, the one who's doing exercise of the power tends to become more and more brittle. And uh, the one who's giving in is actually getting stronger because, oh, you know... Um, we didn't go out to the concert, we went out to a football match because that's what the other person wanted. I actually found I quite enjoyed it when I went there, you know, I've discovered something new. Mm. Whereas the other person has just had it confirmed that they never want to go to a concert, you know. <laughs> so uh, that happens in personal relationships. And I see that in, uh, there was a lot of talk towards the end of last century on empowerment, as though that's just the greatest thing. But if you think of someone like Adolf Hitler, who has total power, or Saddam Hussein, they tend to go balmy. Because in a way, if you have total power, you make the world into everything you want it to be, which means you end up in a prison which you've made, which is yourself. Whereas if you open up in that sort of holistic way to experience and are prepared to take on everything, you get stronger because you find, hey, I could survive that, I could survive that, you know, I've got through that one. And so that's one of the things when I talk about the holistic side of magic, is that people often think of it, measure it in terms of what they can make happen, 
Whereas magical thinking just as much gives you ways of coping with surprising things. And that is actually very strengthening. One of the ways one could see magic is as a practice for putting one in touch with the possible of what else this world is capable of, as opposed to just remaining stuck in our little cognitive prisons. And that may be one of the reasons why people prefer the conjurers who don't reveal their tricks, because a trick that isn't revealed uh, looks miraculous, but in its appearance of miraculousness, it is showing us what we know deep down is possible in the sense that there's an endemic agnosticism that's just part and parcel of being human. We don't know what's possible. We can only know what has been. We can't know what could be. So any revelation of the miraculous is, in a sense, an opening up of what may be, what could maybe be. <laughs> and even the, the fakest magic trick, in a sense, is real magic to the extent that it opens up this field of possibility and allows one to think in a broader sense or to think more deeply about the nature of reality. I, I think in the essay, I refer to Yuri Geller, which at yep. the time I joined the Magic Circle, which was in the late 70s, he was despised by most conjurers because, you know, here's this guy who's a very second-rate conjurer. He's not using any very clever tricks, but he's making millions, you know, and, and a fortune, and everyone's talking about him. Um, whereas we who have practiced and practiced and got tremendous skills, you know, um, <laughs> nobody's watching us. Um, what struck me at the time, and I mentioned this in the article, is that the thing was they were just entertainers doing clever tricks and not telling us how they worked. Whereas Yuri Geller, for a year or two, you know, dominated sort of conversation in pubs and bars, you know, wow, do you think it's really possible that we've got the mental power to bend silver and things like that? You know, he really opened up a sense of wonderment in people. And that in itself was so valuable. I felt all the conversations and the debates and the people trying it out and this, that and the other did so much more. And yet it was despised by many of the traditional conjurers at that time. I'm just very glad that we've moved on a bit since then and, and you know, there is the realisation that to create magic in the watcher's mind is just as important as doing something clever to fool them. In the essay, you actually argue that it's the, the trickery part may be a necessary step towards real magic. Once the uh, the mentalist has performed his, his or her tricks often enough, they become second nature to them, but then eventually truly uncanny effects start to become possible. And it's almost like the trickery opens up a field where uh, real magic becomes possible. Is that, is that something you still stand by? Yes, that's it. Because, uh, I mean, it's, it's been summarized as fake it till you make it, which actually is quite a, a strong part of, of magic. My little book on how to see fairies, what I did is I, it was based on a course I did, which was called Clairvoyance for the Non-Psychic. In other words, I begin with people who like, not the ones who detest the idea, but the people who like the idea of clairvoyance and would like to be clairvoyant, but they can't quite believe in it, you know, and they're not aware of having any powers. And it was a question of how to increase sensitivity. And I gave exercises which are very like what's now called mindfulness. It's instead of allowing the brain immediately to say, oh, it must just have been a shadow, not a ghost, because ghosts don't exist. Or, you know, 
oh, it's probably just a coincidence that we both picked up the phone at the same time. Instead of immediately jumping to that truth thing, just allow the experience to happen. And then when you've allowed it to happen, later judge whether it had any value. So rather than sort of saying, well, you know, I can't really believe in tarot cards, um, it's not worth doing, uh, allow yourself to play with the tarot. And if you begin to get interesting results, that's the time to bring in rationality and say, now, hang on, is that just wishful thinking or is it, um, you know, is there real value in that? And so that was the way I encouraged people to discover their psychic ability up to the point where I showed them how to see fairies in the way that I described in that same article, Charleston and the Magus, uh, which for me began when I gave up saying I must really see real fairies and not be using my imagination. When I allowed myself to say, well, pity I can't see fairies, but I wonder what they would look like if I could see them. And I found my imagination immediately told me what they would look like. Now, that is laughable to many people. But the point that I found was that it wasn't totally arbitrary. My imagination uh, was quite consistent in what it considered fairies would look like. You know, I got, began to get consistent and actually interesting results when I did that. And they grew more vivid and more coherent. And I thought, good heavens, I am actually, I, I'm discovering clairvoyance. <laughs> you know, by yeah. allowing myself this trickster thing of using imagination, which I'd always said, no, 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 I don't want to imagine it, I want the real thing. But, yeah, so, you know, I feel that it's more about what you allow to happen than what you actually make happen. And it's if you can allow things to happen, then you can progress to making things happen. But for many people, the, um, that is the stumbling block. They might get a good result and say, well, I suppose it could have just been coincidence too quickly. Um, rather than uh, actually using the experience as a learning tool. figure that you use throughout How to See Fairies, but also I think you allude to it in this essay, Charlton and the Magus, is the imagery borrowed from the tarot, the sword and the cup. And that the sword and the cup define two interpretive possibilities. The sword, like the suit of swords in the tarot, represents the discriminating intellect, the tool that cuts away, that takes an object and starts cutting it into pieces the better uh, through a kind of process of analytical disassembly you know the better to grasp it you know you you grasp the whole by breaking it into parts and so there's a good reason for that perennial symbolism of the sword for the rational intellect but then the cup the suit of cups which in the tarot tends to symbolize emotion um, human feeling 
the cop is the opposite. It receives everything. It holds everything without judgment. It assembles. You put things together into a cup. You know, you can mix the different ingredients of a cocktail in a cup. You know, all the grail imagery in the Arthurian mythos and elsewhere is of things being mingled in a cup and that being a fundamental creative act. This is a really nice way of talking about something in uh, interpretive philosophy or hermeneutic philosophy, the dialogue between criticism and charity, or you know, critical thinking, as we call it, and something which we don't nor- really have a name for because it's so seldom practiced in any kind of formal way, which is charitable thinking, a thinking aimed at wholeness, at, at assembling. And one thing I often say, and this is in my capacity as a university professor, as somebody who's teaching graduate students, you know, higher education has an enormous inbuilt bias towards the sword. And much of what you've been saying in this essay, and also what you've just said now, about like how to see fairies, well, don't whip out the sword too fast. Like if, if the first thing you reach for is the sword every single time, then chances are you're going to cut your experience to pieces before it has a chance to really do anything. And in the sort of more abstract terms of hermeneutic philosophy, I often say to students that, you know, we are teaching you how to perform this sort of analytical disassembly. And that is an absolutely fundamental skill required of anybody in academia. But then I said, the problem is we don't also formally practice putting things back together, making sense of things, holds of things. We do it all the time, but it's much less theorized. And as a result, people who go through this kind of rigorous education often remind me of like it would be as if you went to the gym every day and you did curls with only your left hand so you would end up with a massively hypertrophied left arm in this uh, uh, in this skinny stringy little right arm you're you're out of balance right for me the a notion of balance of wholeness is a very valuable thing in teaching and education when we come to think about interpreting something because the wholeness is between you know your ability to take things apart but also to put things back together again yes i mean alchemically solve et coagula you know that um you separate out the parts to purify them individually which is like analyzing them in their most perfect form but it is you put it all back together again to get the tincture or the essence alchemically and i just on that, um, I mean, you know, in, in traditional ritual magic practice, the role of the sword is for banishment. And of course, that's what it does so well. You see some apparently magical or weird thing happening and you analyze it and you can usually get rid of it by doing that uh, to some satisfaction. And the sword therefore acts as a banishing ritual. And I used to say that a lot of the work that is done to debunk psychic phenomenon is actually can be seen as a banishing ritual to remove the magic. But uh, yeah, that's it. And I said it was like as though a religious person wanted to disprove the existence of the devil by trying to invoke him in the middle of a cathedral. <laughs> I was trained as a mathematical analyst, you know, so I'm, I'm very much value that approach and all that. But I have learned to put it aside until I've got some interesting results really to analyze rather than make it a reason yeah. not to do things in the first place. It seems like what we lack today, what one of the things that modernity lacks is um, what John Keats called negative capability. You know, the ability to just dwell in uncertainty and strangeness and mystery and doubt without, as Keats put it, without 
any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And like, obviously, we all agree that rationality and reason has tremendous usefulness. Swords are useful. Banishments are essential. But it's this this overreaching, this neglect of the cup, of the of the receptivity, of the ability to to welcome, to to let something unfold before us and all its strangeness and mystery, and then to to accept it as that. And it seems like one of the the remedies for the modern condition, let's say the hyper modern condition of of this constant overreach for fact and reason, would be just to train people in negative capability by reminding them, reminding ourselves that we always ultimately dwell in mystery. And that no rational argument will ever banish the mystery of the real itself. And it seems that if we could do that as a culture, then reason would, would not lose any of its power and of its, of its strength, let's say. But there would be a capacity on, at the cultural level to engage with reality, maybe in a more holistic way, maybe in a more... Um, well, certainly in a more interesting way. I don't know. It goes with that word re-enchantment, I think. You know, that um, the rationalist banishing of the sword has removed a lot of possibilities from our world. And for many people, that leaves us with a rather sort of dry desert, a concrete jungle of a world where we've lost a lot of the mystery. And uh, uh, at one time, I, I described what I was trying to do it was like, and I gave that example, you know, that we've, we're now in a world that's been concreted over. But in my magical writing, I was like finding the little cracks in the concrete where tiny flowers were sprouting up and exploring that, you know, because underneath there's still earth. The stuff is still there. And um, where is it breaking through? So that was my approach to the sort of re-enchantment that... Uh, and I would say that, you know, getting back to my fanboying at the beginning of this conversation, talking about how much your writing has influenced me, for me, reading Sasatomi about a decade ago was like being given a jackhammer to start just like really banging away at that concrete. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah, well, that's terrific. Great. It's interesting, though, because, you know, when we start talking in these ways, uh, somehow all the polarities seem to reverse Everything somehow bends into its opposite. And so I find myself sometimes wondering if the constraints that the taken-for-granted style of thought cultivated modernity, the, the limits that it places on our capacity for enchantment, the, the, you know, the layer of concrete that it pours over everything, I sometimes wonder if that isn't like the best possible thing to have in your toolkit as a magician. In the same way that I've heard it argued that Christianity was like the best thing that ever happened to sex. And apparently there was some scientific study done a while ago that women who are in marriages where they and their partner are both evangelical Christians actually have more orgasms per month than secularists. I, I think I remember reading that somewhere and I remember wondering like, how is that possible? Um, and the argument is that by placing so many constraints on sexuality, on making it so difficult to achieve a kind of sexual expression, it means that it charges sexuality. It makes it glow with a kind of nuclear force, that it makes the sex hotter when it is actually finally consummated. And I wonder if there isn't something similar going on. It's like we have to 
we have to dig our way through the concrete to get to the earth beneath, right? So that we can start growing something. But the fact that we've been set a challenge, that you have to fight for your right to party, uh, is, is something that in fact makes the world more magical because you're active, you're participating in it. Does that make any sense? Or am I just being Pollyanna? I, I, I like Looking that. for the bright side. I like that. It reminds me of, uh, of what uh, Lionel was saying earlier about strength and power. So that in a scientific age, science is in a position of power, but therefore it grows weak and magic gains strength. And so the, the little stem, the little green stem that's piercing the concrete, uh, that's pure magic that had to work really hard to, to break through uh, the shell we built around ourselves, but it's all the more magical for it. And magic remains perfectly alive, even in uh, this hyper The concrete age. jungle. Right, in the concrete jungle. Yeah, and there's a wonderment in seeing that little plant sticking up through the concrete. You know, you wouldn't have noticed it if it was in a field of flowers. But, uh, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it catches the eye. It's, it draws attention. I mean, I think that this emphasis on mindfulness, which has become something which I think even uh, skeptics recognize the value of mindfulness. But you see, if you are really mindful, you're open, you're sensing everything that you notice, not just what's happening out there, but your own internal states and your response to them and everything, which means that potentially you start to notice things that you would have previously said, oh, that's just stupid, I won't think of that. Or, oh, I'm just being prejudiced or whatever. Um, you're actually opening up your awareness to more things, and that's part of the thing of allowing more magic to happen. subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.